Welcome to the Kelly Cardenas podcast where attitude is everything. On today's show, I've been, I've been looking forward to this since it got scheduled. I've been up, I was up like on Christmas day today and I was thinking, how am I going to introduce? But this is the first person that I've had on the show that needs absolutely no introduction. I could just say his name and everyone in the world that has a pulse will know who this young man is. But I want to list off a couple of things. So he has represented the number one pick in the NFL draft eight times. He's represented Troy Aikman, Steve Young, Ryan Leaf, over 300 pro athletes, over 60 first round picks, and a a little known guy that you guys possibly might know that, uh, I mean, he's doing okay in the NFL right now uh, by the name of Patrick Mahomes, um, but also was the inspiration for the movie, Jerry Maguire, and the most important out of all of this is he is my brother's number one inspiration, and that's why I'm so excited to have on the show today Mr. Lee Steinberg, the greatest of all time. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) So I want to get the particulars out of the way, too. If you want to follow him and you don't, again, you don't have a, like, if, if you don't know who he is, you don't have a computer and you've never been on this earth before, Lee Stein, or, uh, SteinbergSports.com. You can check him out at Lee Steinberg uh, on Instagram and uh, LinkedIn, and you can search him, Google him. It'll pop up right off the bat, uh, which I think is amazing. Um, he told me that his title is the Chief Poobah. Um, can you tell me why this t- title, uh, Mr. Steinberg, is so important to you, being the Chief Poobah? <laughs> There are no titles that are so important uh, to me at all. Uh, it's uh, I'm just Lee. So, Lee, let me ask you this: um, When people look at you, I mean, you're you're a you're a a, a Michael Jordan, a Kobe. Um, you know, you look at a LeBron, you look at a Tom Brady, you look at all these athletes that are the greatest of all time. You are the greatest at what you do that's ever lived, right? Talk to us a little bit about your philosophy and how you were able to get to that point. And did you even focus on it uh, early on? My dad raised us with two core values. One was treasure relationships, especially family. And the second was to try to make a meaningful difference in the world in a positive way and help people who couldn't help themselves. So the whole goal I've always had is to be the best son, the best brother, the best uh, father uh, that I can be, a good husband, um, and a friend to people when it's inconvenient to be a friend, when it may cost you something to be a friend. That's true friendship. And also to try to help people who can't help themselves in the world. So um, I knew that in life, uh, that was going to be the goal. Um, and my dad used to say to me, if you're looking for someone to make a change, if you're looking for someone to fix a problem, and you keep waiting for the amorphous they, they, older figures, political figures, people in authority, he would say, you could wait forever. The they in life is you, son. You are the they. So it imbues one with a sense of responsibility, whether it's the environment and climate change or sex trafficking or domestic violence or racism or bullying, to try to find a way to work that will somehow uh, address those uh, uh, issues and uh, I fell into the representation of athletes, but I saw the opportunity to do some good with it. So when you say that you fell into the representation of, can you take us through that? Because most people can't bridge the gap. I've got a chance to be with you um, in some pretty intimate uh, areas, like at uh, Prosperity Camp that, that we were at. There's probably about 40 people. There's very few people that get a chance to be around a, a group in of 40 with you, my sir. So... <laughs> But you're, what I loved about it is when we went to Secret Knock and it's 250, 300 people, you were exactly the same. You were this guy that wasn't beating your chest. Um, and most people look at it and say like, oh my gosh, he's the greatest of all time. How does he get there? And you're saying that you fell into the thing that you're the greatest of all time. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. Um, I really thought I would 
be a great lawyer, a defender of the downtrodden, uh, and that would be what I would do. Um, I was going to Cal Berkeley in the late 60s, so a very different time from today. And the governor of California was Ronald Reagan, and I was student body president. So I learned everything I ever needed to know about the art of negotiation from dealing with Governor Reagan because we kept demonstrating and he kept cracking down. And every time that happened, um, I would have to intercede. Uh, I was a dorm counselor in an undergraduate dormitory. And they moved the freshman football team into the dorm. And one of the students was Steve Bartkowski, the quarterback. And in 1975, he became the very first player picked and selected in the first round of the overall NFL draft. And I hadn't taken a job yet. I had traveled after law school for about a year and a half. And he ended up asking me to represent him. So there I was brimming with legal experience, never having practiced before. And I had the first pick in the first round of the draft. And we got lucky there was a competing football league, so we signed the largest rookie contract uh, in history. And at that point, what I saw was the way in which veneration and idol worship was put upon athletes and communities across the country, how they were the movie stars, they were the celebrities. And I thought, you know, if an athlete would go back and retrace his roots – to the high school community, set up a scholarship fund, work for a boys and girls club or a church. They could lay down roots. And then at the professional level, set up a charitable foundation with leading business figures, political figures, all of whom could help assist uh, on executing a program. So that was like work done, the running back for Tampa and Atlanta, uh, putting the 175th single mothers in the first home they'll ever own by making the down payment and um, um, making the down payment and moving the family in. Um, It's Patrick Mahomes with his 15 in the Mahomes uh, program. So I created a practice around the concept of giving back and the athlete triggering imitative behavior. So Lennox Lewis, the heavyweight champion of the world in boxing, uh, did a public service announcement that said, real men don't hit women. And that could do more to trigger behavioral change in rebellious adolescents than a thousand authority figures ever could. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you're enjoying it. Uh, Now's the time to do some shameless promotion. This episode is brought to you by Squeeze Dry, the delicious, no-hassle way to get superfoods, vitamins, and nutrition. SqueezeDry.com. It's also brought to you by Cardenas Law Group, a high-level boutique law firm for all your personal injury needs. That's CardenasLawGroup.com. Thank you so much again for listening. Hopefully, you're continuing to enjoy the episode. Now, Lee, when you when you started in on this, because this is, I mean, it's, it's blowing my mind that you said I stumbled into this. Steve Barkowski has to happens to be with you at school. There was another Steve that you didn't mention that was a, at your school too. We'll talk about him in a second, but this is not a popular way of going about it because most of the time people are just thinking about how much money can I get and how quickly can I get it. And especially in the athlete sense, you're not going to have a long career. Um, you know, the, 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 the span is very short. So how were you able to overcome? I mean, this concept, which is phenomenal, but this is, this is legacy lifetime. And a lot of times people can't think past today. How were you able to convince them as you went along to be able to buy into this kind of concept? The enemy for athletes uh, is self-absorption. It's being living in a little homunculus of other athletes and not having any awareness of their role in the world. So um, this gives the athlete an opportunity to show their non-athletic skills and learn how to network and learn how to 
uh, make make a difference and um, and leave a legacy uh, on on issues that are really important to them. So the key was to get them to think about whether it was at-risk kids or disease someone in their family had had or something personal that would um, inspire them so they'd put some passion into it. And so the most important skill, I think, in life is listening. It's being able to cut below the surface with another person and understand their value system, priorities, and their greatest anxieties and fears and greatest hopes and dreams. So it it involved being quiet and still and creating a sense of trust around an athlete so that they would share um, their intimate feelings. If I can put myself in someone else's heart and mind and see the world the way they see it, then it's possible to navigate through life gracefully. But you have to cut below the surface responses and get into someone's, not what they think you want to hear, but who they really are as a, a, as a human being. So it was by doing that that I tried to profile and attract athletes who would be open and interested in doing this. And if they weren't, they had many other choices. So talk to talk to us too, because again, like when we go back to it, when you're first starting off with Steve Barkowski, this is not number one. Is you're you're a pioneer in in what it is that you're doing, right? And it's probably not that popular. I mean, you've got a law. You at the time you're either uh, did you have your law degree at the time? Yes. Okay. So I I graduated. Uh, I was the class of '73. I traveled for um, a year. Um, and uh, then came back, and I had a number of legal offers, but I never got to take them because Bartkowski asked me to do it. And there really wasn't a regulated, standardized field of sports agentry at that point. Um, teams didn't have an obligation to talk to agents, so you could call up the Cincinnati Bengals, and they'd slam down the phone and say, we don't deal with agents. So it was really embryonic at that stage. It's become much more sophisticated and complex since. So talk with us about, for, for those of us out there that here on ESPN, it comes across the ticker that says, uh, you know, Patrick Mahomes signs for $500 million. Everyone at home is like, oh, wow, in, in, our, in our limited knowledge of the game, the normal sports fan is like, oh, wow, he went to him and said, look, I'm not playing unless you give me 500 million. And then they said, well, you're really valuable. So we're going to let you, we're going to give you that check. And then, uh, you know, everyone rides off into the sunset. Can you take us behind the scenes? Because I know that's not what happens, but that's what most people think happens. How does no. it actually happen, Lee? Well, for a veteran player, you're looking at comparables. In other words, how many years of service, what level of performance, who would you compare them to, what's the market? And so, and when you have a player who's really at the top of the game, you have the opportunity to set the market. So um, you're negotiating with a big packet of materials showing how talented the player is, how prolific he is and what that ought to equate to in terms of value. And um, in the case of Mahomes, it was a 10-year contract. And he wanted to do that so that there'd be no doubts about who was going to be the quarterback for the long term of the Kansas City Chiefs and to create stability and to create a team that could go repetitively back to the to the uh, Super Bowl. So a contract in football has a signing bonus in it and then it has some number of years of uh, some number of years of salary and then the question is is it guaranteed is the money uh, paid if the player has a career in injury or is the money paid if the player is not very talented so those that's a concept of guarantees and whether or not you'll actually see the money so it's a discussion, and I have to put myself in the heart and mind of the owner and general manager of the team to understand what their needs are and what their 
And if you can create a win-win scenario where both parties achieve their goals and everyone walks away happy, that's the ideal negotiation. Let's, let's dig into that part. You just said if both parties walk away happy, then it's a successful negotiation. This is contrary to what, I mean, almost everything that you've said today is contrary to every single thing that you hear. Most people say in negotiation, you go in, you're a shark, you're going to get yours. If you don't get yours, then someone else is going to take it. How have you been able to stay in this? I mean, and this calm demeanor, guys, that you're watching and that you're listening to, this is Lee. Like I saw him in a, a large place where he spoke and everyone was clamoring. He had to get in a corner because everyone's going after him for autographs, for pictures, for all this stuff. And he's still exactly the same. How do you stay in that realm when the world is saying, you got to get this, you got to get that, or else you're not going to get it? I, I think it's critical in life, in critical situations, to compartmentalize, adopt a quiet mind, tune out all the externals and be able to elevate your level of performance and focus um, in, in those critical situations. And it involves putting every ounce of energy into this moment. So you and I are sharing an experience and I don't know what time it is right now. I'm not sure what day of the week it is. It doesn't matter. Um, it, I'm not looking at my phone. I'm not worrying about what I'm going to do next. Um, Every ounce of energy is put into this moment. And if you can do that moment by moment through life, you'll get the most satisfaction and fulfillment out of it. So Lee, when, when I was, when we were talking about it earlier and you were talking about the Barkowski part and you, you had the law offers, you had gone to law school how, how were you able to deal with, because I'm sure there was people in your life that were saying, Lee, like you've got this career, this law career, you paid the money, you went to school, you did all this stuff. Why are you playing and going and doing this stuff in sports? You need to be a lawyer. Did you deal with that part of it? And how did you, if you, if you did deal with it? Well, first of all, of course, I always have been a lawyer and uh, I'm a sports lawyer. And it's just another field. So there's no real difference between if I was negotiating for a company that created pig iron or some other commodity and, and I was negotiating for that. I happen to have individuals as uh, athletes. And I really tried to define a career that would be everything I like to do. You know, if I wanted to write a book, I could write a book. If I wanted to spend 40% of my time working on charitable programs, I could do that. Uh, if, if I wanted to work on movies, I could do that. Um, if I wanted to save the world, I could do that. So I just tried to create every fun thing that I liked in the world and call it somehow a job. So with with your with your pop, I mean, he seems like a very wise guy. As he was, he was he was teaching you those things as a kid. And now my pop is very wise; like he is probably the wisest guy that I know. But there was a a, a time where I resisted those things. Was it when you were a kid? Were Lee? Were you resisting these things, or were you were you like uh, you know wisdom wisdom Lee all the time? Or, or as a kid, were you a knucklehead? Always tried to listen always tried to soak in whatever knowledge I could get or perspective from other uh, people. Um, I just think life's a learning experience. I mean, I read six newspapers a day. I read uh, three books a, uh, a week. I think you never stop learning. And what's important to me is to know what's important to you and, and what you're all about. I mean, I'm being interviewed right now, but normally I'd be focused on, on who you are and, and, and what you're about and what unique perspectives uh, that you have about life so that it's a sense of curiosity about um, other people and, and caring about them and, and caring about their welfare. 
So talk to us too about your your pop when you were talking about him. Talk to us about the relationships that he had. I mean, your his relationship with your mom, the things that really impacted you because a lot of times our dads will say something, but then we watch them do something that will impress on us even more. Can you talk to us about some specific things that you saw your parents do that taught you even more than the words that they said? So it was... Uh... I was a baby boomer born, you know, in the years after World War II, and it was really unpopular uh, to Japanese Americans had been unfairly uh, treated and put into camps. So when they came out, um, my dad hired a Japanese gardener. Well, there were neighbors who said, you know, how can you do this? Those guys fought us. And my dad was pretty clear that Japanese Americans were Americans and <clears throat> were entitled to all the respect of that. And I watched my dad fight for human relations. I watched him do his dissertation on the Human Relations Council of Southern California. I watched him uh, fight for fair housing. I watched him do all these things. So I saw how a person's life, he was a teacher, then a high school principal, but his avocation was being president of the City Human Relations Commission. So I watched him do those things, which were brave things. I've learned about him writing an editorial uh, when he was in the Marine Corps against the displacement of uh, Japanese Americans. So I saw that he had courage and he had convictions, and I knew I wanted to to be like that. At home, we actually had a a he had a great relationship with my mother, <clears throat> and I saw them affectionate with each other, which uh, I think you know is important. And I saw the fact that they loved each other, and 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 we had certain rules in our family. That, for example, you couldn't go to bed mad, that you needed to settle, uh, you needed to learn a fair way to fight, which was you could talk about someone's behavior, that you didn't like this behavior, but you couldn't personalize it to them. Like, you never, you always, you're this, this, this. You couldn't do that. That was off limits. And so it made dispute resolution much easier. I learned to apologize. I learned to be honest. You know, if you spilled the milk in our family, you weren't in trouble. But if you lied about spilling the milk, then you were in big trouble. And uh, we actually had a family club called the Muddenheads. And uh, somebody was always the president. I had three brothers. Someone, so the five of us, someone was president, vice president, secretary, sergeant at arms, treasurer. And we learned how to uh, Robert's Rules of Order, and we had new business and old business. So I really was somewhat trained politically uh, in in uh, back in those days. And my dad didn't care what we did for a living as long as we tried to be of service to other people. So that was sort of what I learned. And um, um, so it's it's if I feel like I've offended somebody or done something wrong, I think every day when I get home about was I fair, was I uh, uh, honest, and the rest of it. And if I've ever felt like I wronged someone, I would run them down the street to apologize. You know, no <clears throat> pride there. You want to have a, a clear conscience in terms of how you interact with other people. This episode is brought to you by one of my favorite companies in the entire world, the Mina Group. As one of the top culinary experiences in the world, celebrity chef Michael Mina and his team are dedicated to giving you what you never knew you always wanted. With 30 locations throughout the world, this company is focused on the one thing that truly matters, their people, and that is why they are your world of wow. Change your life by going to michaelmina.net. Well, Lee... For a person, like from the, again, from the outside, when we're when a person's listening right now or they're watching you, um, they're seeing a person in their eyes or from their perspective that is literally jumping from mountaintop to mountaintop. I mean, we talk about the Troy Aikmans of the world or the Steve Youngs of the world, or you were talking about the Bartkowski, and we you know, we move it on to Patrick Mahomes and and being able to see those kind of things. 
people learn from that. But what I learned from my brother, who uh, you, you did a video for, and we'll talk about here in a second. But what I learned from my brother is more people learn from your missteps and the challenges you had than the things that you succeeded at. Can you talk to us about some of the negotiation missteps and maybe where you left things on the table and learned a valuable lesson? There was a time when I had a player with the old St. Louis Cardinals that are now the Arizona Cardinals. And the owner was being unfair. Um, He was offering less than the market value to this draftee. And um, so the press covers these negotiations. And so I started criticizing him and saying if he was – using the monies not paying my client to drop ticket prices, I would understand, but, uh, but he's not, he's being unfair. And the thought was somehow there'd be a people's revolution, you know, like uh, walking to the Kremlin uh, uh, to support this player I had. But, but I realized that this fellow was being offered $2 million instead of four. And to most people that was more money than they would ever see or think of. So all I was doing was pushing away fans and, um, and all I was doing was making the owner more stubborn. So that was the last time I ever negotiated publicly Mm. because I understood that, Uh, Behind the scenes, it's possible to say all sorts of things, but every person has pride. Every person has ego. And what you don't want to do is is push someone up against the wall in a way where they'll just be defensive. So I learned that. In my personal life, um, there came a time I I had lived a very charmed life, but there came a time where my father died a long death of uh, cancer, and it was really painful to watch, and I couldn't help him. And my two sons were diagnosed with uh, retinitis pigmentosa, which is an eye disease that leads to total blindness. And we lost a home in near the beach to mold, and uh, I felt powerless, and, um, and I turned to alcohol. And I finally hit the point where I said, I can't live this way. So I vowed at that point, and this is in 2010, that if nothing else in my life, I would uh, be sober and be a good parent. And if anything else came about, that would be fine. And so that was 12 years ago, and, and I've had 12 years of continuous sobriety and, importantly, have been a good uh, father to my children. And... Um, and then we were able ultimately to rebuild a um, agency and to come back to to sort of slightly dominate the industry. And um, but the key is resilience. Life will push you back. Life will knock you over. Life life will break your dreams and expectations at times. So that's going to happen. The question is, can you be resilient? Um, in I was raised in an optimistic environment, so we always think a happy ending is going to happen. That's even though there was wreckage in front of me. That you know, if there was a barn filled with defecation, and that's all you could see. Uh, Somehow, I always believed there was a pony in there somewhere, <laughs> if you could just find them. So it's all about um, uh, resilience, and it's about optimism, and a sense of proportionality. Because what I realized was I wasn't a starving peasant in Darfur. I w- didn't have the last name Steinberg in Nazi Germany in the late 30s. I wasn't... Um, uh, crippled, I didn't have a disease. So, what excuse did I have not to live up to my dad's admonitions? So, let's go to when you said slightly dominate. I love because in everything you're humble. Every single thing, even when again people were clamoring for you at the uh, at Secret Knock, and I came up and I didn't want to be that guy. But my brother, like you, are the inspiration for my brother Rob. 
to even be in his profession. He went to law school. He, uh, he has always dream. I mean, your, your path and what you did really inspired him and inspires him every single day. Um, and so when I, when I, when I hear this, I, I love, I love the fact of the humility. And, and for those of you listening, it's real. I've experienced it. I've experienced it like person to person. The question that I have for you is when you were, when you were coming back, you saw something in Patrick Mahomes at Texas Tech that no one else saw. I mean, there were some people that saw it, but no one could understand what it was going to be. Take us into the mind of, of the, the, the Lee Steinberg that says, I'm going to go after, what are the, some of the traits that you saw that you knew that you could build upon? So um, Patrick Mahomes was playing at Texas Tech, and Texas Tech had a very uh, porous defense, and they were giving up 50 points a game. So he felt obligated to score on almost every play. So that led people to misperceive him as somehow being a gunslinger, undisciplined, and the rest of it. But my thought was um, that – he could do a three, five, seven step drop, which is not an offense that they play. And many players in college are playing the spread. And when he got a chance to, to take the ball under center and, um, uh, and not be behind on every single play, that his skills, which is a freakish arm, a incredibly grounded attitude, a leadership uh, capability, um, uh, a memory that allowed him to remember every play that that he would be a franchise quarterback. And let's call that someone that you can uh, win because of rather than with, someone you, a t- franchise could build around for 10 to 12 years, and someone who importantly, as we said a minute or two ago about our own lives, in critical moments – in adversities, throwing a couple interceptions, the crowd's booing, the uh, center's looking at, at him like he's on hallucinogens for making the plays he's making. What does he do now? And again, the most games in sports are close. Uh, about a third of them are blowouts, but it always comes down to that fourth quarter, the last drive, and what do you do then? And uh, it was clear to me that he was someone that was so bright and so gifted that uh, he would be able to to dominate at the next level um, playing in a, a, a pro-set offense. This episode is proudly brought to you by SamaritansFeet.org. I met Manny Ahomey probably about four or five months ago, and this man had such an impression on me. He told me that when he was nine years old, he had lived up until that point without shoes, and he won a contest, uh, got shoes, and it changed his whole entire life, inspired him to play basketball, inspired him to get a, a Division I uh, scholarship playing basketball and uh, succeed at a high level in his life. He then got to a point where he was so successful Successful, but he was looking for purpose in his life. Samaritan's Feet serves and inspires hope in children by providing shoes as a foundation to a spiritual and healthy life, resulting in the advancement of education and economic opportunities. When I asked Manny, why shoes? Why did you think that this would be so huge? And he said to provide a tangible foundation of hope and the opportunity for a better life, to prompt children to focus in school and families not to worry and to protect feet and decrease the possibility of getting a foot-borne disease. Since 2003, Samaritan's Feet and its partners have distributed over 8 million pairs of shoes in 108 countries and over 440 U.S. cities. And that's why I'm so proud that SamaritansFeet.org is one of the main sponsors of the Kelly Cardenas podcast because making this world a better place is our rent for living on this planet. So give us some insight too. I mean, you, you worked with Steve Young and Steve Young went through a, a time when, when the, the Montana years and then he was coming in and he was going to get a shot. What were some of the things that you were working with Steve Young through 
as he's going through that, because most people don't see the emotional side. They don't see the personal side. They just see like, oh man, my man Montana is out or they're giving him the shaft or they're benching, uh, you know, Steve Young, they should put him in beforehand. So we're just seeing all this outside, but you're seeing the interior. What are some of the things that, uh, that you were helping him through or that you were there for him with that most people don't understand? Well, Steve was someone who uh, treasured competition and involvement. And so the last thing in the world that was good for his psyche was sitting behind the best quarterback in football. And uh, there were so many other teams that Steve could start for. So to, to when Bill Walsh, who was the coach then, had talked to us about coming, he said, well, Montana was going to retire because of back problems. And so I lived in the Bay Area at that point. I knew what an icon Montana was. That would not have been where Steve Young would have gone, except that we were told that Montana was going to retire. Well, not only does he not retire, but the presence of this young first pick in the draft franchise quarterback behind him made him uh, competitive, and he played his best years yet. So uh, one of the things that Steve did was he went back to BYU and went to law school. And he had to have something else in his life to occupy him, or, you know, he would have gone stir-crazy. And there were points at which I said, just why don't we just get you traded? Because, first of all, um, you're not you're wasting your years of, of uh, at your peak sitting behind someone. Second of all, when you do take over, you're going to have the problem every little brother does behind a talented big brother, which is that in the fans' minds, the first time you throw an interception, well, Joe wouldn't have done that. The first time you lose a game, well, Joe won every single game he ever played in. He never threw an interception. And in the mind of fans, you're competing against, you know, a legend. And, uh, but Steve thought there was something special about the San Francisco experience that it might take him a year or two longer, but it would be unique when he got there. And, and, and he didn't listen to me about being traded and, and he had, uh, uh, and now he's in the hall of fame. So Lee, when you, when you were talking, I want to, I want to go back a little bit when you were talking about, you know, going through the, the bouts with alcohol, uh, you know, it affecting your family. And then, then there was a comeback. Can you talk to those people either that are in it or that are in the mix right now, because we had alcoholism in our family. And a lot of times the shame comes in and the shame comes in so much that it almost overpowers the, the person that's, that's utilizing the alcohol and it overpowers them to a point of like, well, what's the use anyway? Um, the shame comes in. How were you able to overcome the shame? And what would you say to a person who's coming through it right now? That if you're out there and struggling, depressed, without hope, because of a problem you're having with an addictive substance, um, there's help available. I worked a 12-step program. Uh, with a unique fellowship. Um, my sobriety is something that has many different authors to it. It's got many different helpers. It's got many different key people who were there uh, for me at, at critical times. I did not do this alone. And um, it's uh, I've been there. And you can get through it. But you have to break denial uh, alcoholism and other addictions are uh, problems that tell you you don't have a problem. So you have to confront the fact. And, and when I'm sitting on my father, deceased father's bed in Los Angeles, and my only thought is where can I find more vodka, um, then uh, you've got to hit a point at which proportionality takes over. You know, we live in a a free country with a high standard of living. I didn't fight in the army to, to earn that. Um, and we've been given many blessings. And so it's trying to get perspective back, trying to see the glass is half full, trying to know there's light at the end of the tunnel. And um, I'm not special. I just uh, uh, found a, a program that works. 
You you are especially. Uh, I just want I want you to know that everyone out there is like, no, he's he's special. I mean, it's it's amazing. But again, the humility part of it. So let's go to let's go to your parents too, because I used to think when my mom my mom passed away about three years ago, about three and a half years ago, I used to think that I was going to get to a point and be like, yo, mom, I got you the house, or yo, mom, I got you the the car. And if I got the chance to speak to her today, I would tell her, thank you for scratching my back and telling me I was awesome. And that's it. What would you tell your mom and dad now? I mean, you could, you could list off all the people that you represented. You could list off all of those things. But what would you say to them if you got a chance to be able to spend time with them right now? Um, well, my mother has a stroke, so she's not currently with us. And, and my father, as I said, died of cancer. Um, um, I say, Dad, you know, thank you for the values uh, and unconditional love that you installed uh, in me and the sense that I was born and destined to make a difference in the world. Thank you for all the different things you taught me. Uh, thank you, Mom, for my love of movies and books and, and, um, and entertainment. And, um, but, you know, thank you for the values. And even though when we were young, five of us lived in, you know, a house and used one bathroom and I shared a room with my two brothers, um, and we didn't have a lot of money. Thank you for never making us feel poor. Um, thank you for always, um, finding what was important and, and providing it. So we never felt that way. And um, I laugh when I see people with uh, torn jeans today as a fashion statement because <laughs> uh, when our jeans got torn, we'd have to put patches on them. But um, the, the, I would say thank you for all these things, and I hope I've made you proud. I hope I've lived up to what your expectations were and uh, I tell my dad, look, uh, when Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and I had set up a program called Adopt a Minefield, and we took landmines out of Cambodia, Angola, and Mozambique, um, you know, you were part of that. When we set up an anti-racism program that would spot skinheads and hate groups and trained uh, 10,000 volunteers in the fight against hate, that's you living through me. Wow. So what advice would you give to a, a young aspiring agent, you know, that they're wanting to get into that game? Because the game is completely different. What, what, what advice or what counsel would you give to in, in that realm? Study psychology. Because at the end of the day, if you can understand why people act the way they do, why they make the decisions they do, and and understand that again if you can push yourself into another person's heart and mind then you'll be able to recruit players to negotiate contracts to to be uh, someone in player uh, uh, maintenance mode you know client service mode but it's all going to be about people and at the end of the day Hone your listening skills, and um, um, the classes you take don't matter at the end of the day. Your ability to read other people and to to respond um, is is what's critical. And if you can do those things, then the rest of it will will come easy. And even though it's a hyper competitive field. And the odds would say that most people don't make it. Um, that doesn't mean that some people don't make it. So the point is, understand what the real um, challenges are and deterrence to your being successful and, and figure out a way around that. You can do, um, uh, you can live through your heart's desire and, and uh, have a fulfilling life. So how is it when, when you, when you represent uh, players from all different teams, is it hard for you on Sunday? Oh, cause I have a team, like I'm a Tennessee Titans fan. I've been an Oilers fan my whole life since I was six. I believe I'm still the only one. Um, and I am like, I'm in, but you really can't have a team. 
How is it on Sunday when you're watching? Because if your player is playing against your other player, are you just happy for them that way? Or do you sometimes lean one way or the other? What, what you'd like to do is get um, as many players as you can into the uh, playoffs and Super Bowl. So you'd like, so the only rooting would be that the experience of being in the Super Bowl or in the playoffs is so unique. You're, you, if, if you think of the players as little markers on a chessboard, you'd like to get them as far to the other side as they could. When it comes to individual games, um, and uh, I'm so happy to hear you're an Euler fan. I had uh, Warren Moon. I had Ray Childress. I had David Williams, who was the offensive lineman who uh, <clears throat> the baby gate was named after because he didn't uh, leave his wife uh, after she had one of their kids to go play a game. Um, but um, at any rate, I'll root for each player to do well. So we have uh, Daryl Henderson on the on the Rams. So I'm just rooting for him individually, and he scored two touchdowns on Sunday. And your and Mahomes comes back after a tough first half to to lead a, 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 a drive. Or and we had two quarterbacks in that game. Taylor Heineke started for the Redskins. So. You're rooting like crazy for your players, um, but you're not rooting very loudly in the stadium. <laughs> uh, you have to be internally uh, excited. Lee, tell me your best not known Warren Moon story. Um, and this one's just for me, uh, because I, I, the reason why I'm a Houston Oilers fan, my dad bought me a jacket when I was six years old. I think it was because they were on sale because at the time the Oilers were not good. And my brother was a big Rams fan. He's a huge Rams fan. And I think they bought the Rams jacket for him. And it was buy one, get one free. And this one was on the rack. And I became an Oilers fan and stayed with them. I've had a lot of pain and, and therapy in my life. Um, <laughs> but tell us your, tell us, tell us an unknown Warren Moon story. Um, well, Warren Moon, when he was in Edmonton, had a chocolate chip cookie. Um, company, and it was called W. Moon's Chocolate Chippery, and he used his mother's recipe, and he baked cookies, and he ended up selling them, and they became a big hit in Canada, and then he brought them back with him to the United States, and um, he ended up selling that company to Mrs. Fields uh, Cookies, Um, but um, I think the most inspirational Warren Moon story is teams were trying to change his position as he came out of the University of Washington, and they were trying to have him be a defensive back, excuse me, or a, a defensive back or a um, a running back or a wide receiver because there was a fair amount of prejudice against a black quarterback at that time, and I said well, do you want to change your position? He said, never. I was born to play quarterback. And that was that. Another pause for station identification and shameless promotion. This episode is also brought to you by Finley Cars of Las Vegas. I tell you, the next level in the car buying experience, and not only that, but the life of your car, the service that you're going to uh, experience is incredible. It's Finley Volvo Cars uh, LV.com. And also brought to you by uh, Bling Shine Serum, the only product on the market that will add weightless moisture, strength, and shine, and the only uh, product that has the endorsement of my mama. When I showed her all the features and benefits, she smelled it, and she said, this is the greatest product that you've ever done. And I thought, mom, do you not uh, look at the features and benefits? She said, no, if it smells like that, it must work. And I tell you, every single woman needs a little bit of bling in their life, and this can be purchased at kellycardinasalon.com. Well, Lee, you, I mean, I'm telling you, you have been absolutely phenomenal. I can stay on all day, but I just want to respect your time. The whole reason why I started the podcast is because of my two kids, Maddox and McKenna. And I wanted to take the most iconic people in the world, like yourself, the greatest of all time. And I wanted to show my kids that now it's Uncle Lee if I can have them call you that. Now, sure. Uncle Lee is not Lee Steinberg, the man who is the best in the world. He's Uncle Lee, who is humble, 
who listens and make sure that people on both sides of the negotiation get exactly what they want and walk away happy. And I wanted to take a person like yourself and I wanted to show them that. Um, so Maddox is 10, um, McKenna is 12. What advice, Uncle Lee, would you give to Maddox and McKenna? And if you could use their names, it would be awesome. So Madison and McKenna, I've been privileged to spend some time uh, with your father. Um, you know, figure out internally what it is that makes you happy and prioritize the things in life you think will make you happy and then make decisions based on those priorities. So figure out how you're going to spend your time when you have a choice about where to go to school, what school you'll do, what you'll, what you'll do for play. Um, but understand how unique both of you are as human beings and follow your own dreams and your own uh, conscience. Well, Lee, you have been absolutely phenomenal. I wish that we would have had some people on here calling in questions, although it would have, you would have had to stay on here for 24, 48 hours. You would have been on here for seven days, uh, you know, uh, continuing to answer the questions. Um, but it is, it is such a pleasure to see a person in the world that is doing the right things for the right reasons and the right things keep happening, even though it's not the perfect circumstances, as you shared with us. But the fact that you continue to make this world a better place, I just think is absolutely phenomenal. And I just want to thank you for being on the show. Well, thanks so much for sharing this time with me. Uh, you've been a good interviewer. Well, thank you so much. I am going to ask you for, I, I don't ask the, the crew for uh, very much, but at some point I would like to have a, another episode with you because I think that you are so absolutely profound. Um, for those of you out there uh, that are listening, this is the time where you click the links. You do all the things that you know you need to do. Um, and what I would suggest is that you share this. If you got any value from Lee, uh, from Mr. Lee Steinberg, the greatest of all time, which I know all of you did, that you make sure and you share this to every single person that you possibly can. Lee, you're officially off the hot seat. <laughs> cool. <laughs>